and I went into a store that looked really cool on the outside. It was called Amish Hippie, and that type of place makes me go inside of it. There wasn't anything in there that I needed, but there was a little kid sitting at the register who was drawing, he was making art, he said, on little pieces of printer paper. And he said, it's only a dollar. And he was offering it to every single person that came in. And I was like, I need to get it together. This kid is who I need to be. Everyone he asked bought one. And I'm like, it's just that simple. You just tell people what you have available. And if they don't want it, it's fine. Welcome to Chatting Over Chowder. We're your hosts, Bethany and Sherilyn. Chatting Over Chowder is a podcast where we ask people in the podcasting industry what podcasts they listen to while eating chowder. Join us for some fun, laughs, and tomfoolery. Get your spoon ready. We're about to dive in. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Chatting Over Chowder. I am Bethany. And I'm Sherilyn. And we are the dynamic duo behind Crackers and Soup, which is a podcast production management company. And this is Chatting Over Chowder, where we talk to women in the podcasting industry about what podcasts they listen to while eating chowder. Sometimes the chowder doesn't show up in time. It's all fine. It's all good. So today with us, we have Delia Kinsey. Delia! We make up our own sound effects because we don't have any yet. So Delia, we're so excited that you have joined us for Chatting Over Chatter, and I am going to read you a little bit of your bio because you should know who you are and all the amazing things that you have done. (laughs) It's exciting. Thank you. It's exciting for us too. (laughs) Like we've already gone on like 500 different rants and it's only been like 10 minutes that we've been talking, but anyway, so... (laughs) So Delia Kinsey is a queer Black registered dietitian, keynote speaker, the creator of the Body Liberation for All podcast, and author of Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal yourself image, and achieve body liberation. On a mission to spread joy, reduce suffering, and eliminate health disparities in the LGBTQIA and BIPOC community, Delia rejects diet culture and teaches people to use nutrition as a self-care and personal empowerment tool to counter the damage of systematic oppression. Delia works at the intersection of holistic wellness and social justice, continually creating wellness tools and resources that center the most vulnerable individuals that hold multiple marginalized identities. Delia's work can be found at www.deliakinsey.com. Delia Kinsey! I just realized that I also need a short bio. <laughs> you do not. So, okay, that was not long. I, wasn't... Have, I get some that are like three paragraphs long and I'm like, I look this. <laughs> this was going to happen. Starts I'm going to read one and a half. elementary school and yeah, no. Yeah, I, I could, yeah, I still feel like I could trim some off of that. But I just want everyone to know at the top, that the book is available for pre-sale. Just put it out there, uh, just in case for some reason you don't finish. <laughs> oh my God, I hurt you so much. Like, play I, so we have the Biz Please section. So Biz Please, tell us where we can find you. <laughs> People are gonna be like, wait a second, is, is it over? <laughs> I'm just so excited about it. I'm, I'm, I just finished really just finished it. And so now it's about printing it and talking about the marketing. And so I'm 
I'm currently obsessed. And then one of my major weaknesses in life in general is hyping myself up. So I'm just like, I'm just going to get it in my head that I need to say it way more than I think I do. And that's another reason why I feel like my podcast listenership took forever to start to grow. So I just didn't talk about it enough. So I'm trying to straighten that out. You are fucking phenomenal. Like the fact that you don't hype yourself up on a regularity is wild to me. If I were you, I'd be like, hello, I'm, I'm Delia Kinsey. I am a queer black registered dietitian who has just written a book. And they'd be like, okay, ma'am, um, your groceries are all packed and it's $17.95. <laughs> like, are you paying with cash or credit? And I'd be like, I'm paying with cash. And by by the way, my name is Delia Kinsey and I'm a, I'm a queer What I need person. to do. It's so funny. I literally just two weeks ago, I was on a retreat and I went into a store that looked really cool on the outside. It was called Amish Hippie. And that type of place makes me go inside of it. There wasn't anything in there that I needed, but there was a little kid sitting at the register who was drawing. He was making art, he said on little pieces of printer paper. And he said, it's only a dollar. And he was offering it to every single person that came in. And I was like, I need to get it together. This kid is who I need to be. Everyone he asked bought one. And I'm like, it's just that simple. You just tell people what you have available. And if they don't want it, it's fine. And he didn't even twitch when one weirdo said, no, I'm like, you don't have a dollar. What's wrong with you? This kid was like seven <laughs> years old. Um, but I just thought, wow, what's the blockage? But when you're socialized to think, oh, you know, femme presenting people should be humble, should be quiet. When you accomplish things, you don't say anything. Or if you, you're a person of color who's been socialized to think don't show up unless you're perfect, then you have to wait and be validated. Like whatever you completed, you have to make sure it's good enough. And then you might tell a couple of people about it, but then you don't want to sound like you're full of yourself. So yeah, obviously all of the blockages are in between my two ears. And can we also talk about the Amish hippies hustle? <laughs> Like, go ahead, go ahead, store, because you know that those parents were like, okay, we're going to have normal stuff within the store. We're going to have like t-shirts, maybe some Snickers, but what's going to be the selling point is little Randy sitting here drawing pictures. So, <laughs> so they like, a per day, he probably pockets thousands of dollars because adorable Believe little it. Randy <laughs> is really the hustle. Now, I love that quick story that I was Randy, but in school, that's what I would do. I would tell like the kids in like my third and fourth grade class, I'd be like, I'll draw the lion or the elephant or whatever you want me to draw for you, 25 cents per drawing. And so I would collect my money and then we'd have like a school store and like, like whenever you go down to lunch, it was like a little school store, just like basically like a mini booth. And I went up to the lady and I was like, I noticed your posters for the holiday are like, like are old. I was like, I'll like, if you give me $5, I'll make you like a new poster. And she was, <laughs> she was like, she was like, honey, if you want, instead I'll have you work the store. And she was like, and you can do the drawings. She was like, and I'll give you something from the store because obviously she couldn't like pay me, you know, it's school. So 
I ended up like working at the school store and I would always do all like her um her posters and then she connected me with like this magazine and I would get like my drawings published and everything um in this magazine but yes I was like where's that girl what happened to that little girl who was like not afraid or ashamed to do it because me now what Oh no, did you lose that? Because I thought for sure you were going to say, and I've always been this way. I can sell anything. No, I need to find her. But that it just reminded Mm. me that I'm like, where did she go? I need to find her again and like do that. Yeah. Somebody probably made you wrong at some point for being that confident. Yes. Yes. The world beat you down, girl. No, (laughs) I want a poster. Like you could charge me $500 because inflation is a mug from when you were little. You got bills, you got bills to pay. I love that, that that adult followed the rules enough. Like you're like, oh, she couldn't pay me, you know, because school, I totally would have paid you. You can like any, any kid who's like got ambition and a dream. I'm like, let me go to the ATM. <laughs> Kieran was like, no, I can give you something if you work for the store, but I can't give you $5 out of my pocket. (laughs) Exactly. What's wrong with her pockets? (laughs) Little Dominican girl who can draw so much better than everything that I've ever produced or sold. But here, you you can work harder for me instead of just producing something that I will showcase for $5. But no, that was very nice of her because she... She did a lot connected more. you to magazines. She did. She did. Yeah, that things. part is very cool. Let's not school Karen. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to Dahlia's podcasting history yet, and we're already schooling Karen. Because <laughs> this is going to be that kind of episode. Get ready, Karens. <laughs> so, Dahlia, you have done so many phenomenal things which you need to recognize for yourself because you are a freaking big deal. How did you get into creating your Body Liberation for All podcast? Because that's such a a beautiful, just the whole title, Body Liberation for All. That speaks so much volume to what your podcast is about and who you are and what you're about. So how, how did you get into creating this podcast? It's funny, this is actually my second podcast. And when I look back at my childhood, a a sibling had to reflect this back to me when I told them I was starting to podcast. They're like, oh, you've always wanted to do this, but the technology didn't exist. Because even, I was just kidding when I said I was in the 80s for like half a second, I was born in 81. Don't tell anybody. Um, But... (laughs) Back then, you know, all we had was our little cassette players and recorders. And if you were lucky, maybe you had one that was for kids that had a microphone and you could record things. But I used to interview my stuffed animals. I was really interested in the radio and the way talk radio in particular would tell stories and people like Ira Glass, pre-Ira Glass, you know, when so many of us were still listening to our entertainment, not just watching it. But at the time, there was no way for a regular person to do that. I even shadowed someone at the public radio station in sixth grade. That's how interested in it I was. But I couldn't see a way to do it. I couldn't see my entry point into that because everyone I saw in broadcasting was male and was white. And at the time, I was being raised in a very religious 
household where secular education was discouraged. And so I was like, I can't see how you can do this unless you go off to school and do this. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be volunteering somewhere was what I thought it was going to be doing. So once podcasting was an option and was on my radar, I was immediately interested. But then I thought, do I have enough to say? Do I have anything important to say, anything different to say? And I kept thinking in terms of what do people want from me? What will people respond to instead of what am I passionate about? What do I want to say? And letting people be drawn to me. So the first show was centered on what I do now. I work in school nutrition and there's a lot of professional development that you have to do. And the USDA literally gives you a list of topics that you have to cover. So I was like, oh, this is a sign. My content, like there's a list, but I did that for a year and then started realizing, especially in 2020, when George Floyd was murdered, why that work wasn't resonating with me anymore. I was getting maxed out on the microaggressions and the racism in my field. And while, while this area of nutrition is less out of control than some area, other areas, it's still just, it's not comfortable. It's not a comfortable space. And so many of the people I would interview, they would come in with this taking type of attitude, colonizer, right? They were bringing the colonizer vibes, coming in to take, not to share, not to connect. And I wanted to use my podcasting to build community, to get to know interesting people, and to be connected to people that I would want to be friends with, whether or not they ever had anything to offer me. And I only came across like one person like that in all the time that I was interviewing for that show. I finally got to my breaking point, you know after George Floyd was murdered. And I'm like, I'm not spending any more time creating content for people who don't care if we live or die. And I'm also going to stop being afraid of fully integrating my marginalized identities into what I do. I want to lead with it because I realized how many people were in my space that would be surprised to find that I support BLM, which is crazy. And anyone who's not looking at this recording, I am very dark. I am as dark as you would expect any black person to be. No one has ever looked at me and wondered if I was black, not in person. I have had people ask in photos. I have no idea why. I guess a lot of flash. I don't know. <laughs> it was so strange for people to be surprised that I identify with my blackness. And people misread, they feel like my voice sounds like I'm an assimilated person and my spouse is white, but none of that means that I don't strongly identify with my blackness. And I realized that to keep these people repelled and out of my space, I needed to lead with my identities. And I was also drawing homophobes into my space unwittingly because people assume if you look like you're married to someone who's opposite gender, that that's the only person you would marry. So I felt really called to make something for queer folks, folks of color, both. At first I wasn't clear on both, but it became clear when I started out once again, doing what I've been trained to do, which most of us have been trained to do is center whiteness. It's the default. 
And I didn't even notice I was doing it until I was looking at my website and the photos of my guests. And I was like, what is happening? What am I doing without thinking about it? And so I re-centered myself and focused on what is my goal with this? Who am I trying to bring together? And if it just takes a little bit more effort to find a guest who is a person of color, then that's what I want to do. That was a whole experience that, that you had just said. And I resonate so much. I worked in a white dominated field uh, for almost two decades. I was the only person of color within the entire building. And I worked for the district attorney's office. I handled extraditions. So in essence, I did all of the paperwork to get the felon back into the state in which I, I had worked. So I would have to have police officers, sheriff's department, um, chiefs come and sign documentation that I had already set up in order to mail it to the state in which the felon was being held for us. So many people, when they met me in person, would say, you're Bethany? Oh. And said it like that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I just got chills because like, Every single time it would take me back and I'd be like, yes, you've been talking to me. And they'd be like, oh, and you, you just know some people would, would hear that and be like, oh, they were just, but why? Because nobody else in that office got that reaction when they came, when they were introduced to somebody. So it was very, it's very enlightening and you automatically make yourself shrink and feel smaller because it's such an uncomfortable position to be in and you can't really articulate why it just makes you feel defeated and embarrassed and that has nothing to do with the fact that I love my blackness but it's just an uncomfortable situation that you have, that you don't want to feel that way. Yeah. I mean, it's such a real, real thing. Sorry to cut you off. It's so real that it may seem small to someone who hasn't had to deal with this day in and day out their entire life since they started school. But when you enter the world and people start telling you you're a person of color, there's so much trauma related to that. And that is a hallmark of a trauma response is that it looks like your reaction or it feels like your reaction is so much bigger than what's happening in the present tense. But when people call these little reminders of racism and the fact that people see us as less than and people assume we'll speak a certain way and people assume that we only have certain names It may be called a microaggression, but it really is a form of violence and it's triggering and it makes us feel upset in a way that seems really big because that's a trauma response. And there's so few places and people that will validate that. And there are also so many folks of color that will undermine that. But the truth of the matter is everyone responds to life differently. And 
who we are descendants of affects that, what environments we've been raised in, our genetic predispositions for anxiety or depression, all of that plays in. So someone else maybe could live through integration of schools and they let it roll right off of their back. And so that type of person will tell you, well, how do you know that this was even race related? And why do you let it bother you? You know who you are, but none of that is helpful. And trying to tell yourself not to feel a certain way has never worked for anyone. That isn't how you get trauma out of the body. And feeling a feeling is the quickest way to move through it. But when everybody tells you, you shouldn't have these big feelings, which happens to almost everyone who's socialized as a female, you're not supposed to have feelings and you certainly aren't allowed to have feelings at work. And if you're a person of color, you're supposed to just be focused on being strong and excellent all the time. And you have to emphasize survival and everything else is a nice to have. And we're being melodramatic. I heard some jerk say this the other day that they're still talking about millennials like we're young. Like millennials are literally in their 40s and have children that are finishing high school. But anyway, but this old person on Fox, don't ask me who was watching it. Anyway, was saying that the self-care stuff that millennials are talking about is so ridiculous. And my Grammy who was working at 12 years old in a coal mine or whatever during the depression would roll her eyes at this. Well, she was raised in a different time, but guess what? We weren't all born to work. That's not our purpose. Having good work that's meaningful to us is a big part of the human experience and makes us feel fulfilled and happy. But this idea that we are on the planet to be of service to others, namely the 1% is BS. That's socialization. And when people try and make us feel bad or diminished for thinking about how our feelings are affected by what people subject us to, that resistance that we come up against, that's all socialization that was meant to keep us under people's boots. And not only that too, but you have, they're all suffering and have their own traumas now. They're just dealing it with different ways and they passed it on to us. You know what I mean? All their traumas that they never dealt with, they passed on to their pa- their children and their children passed it on to us. And now we're here trying to say, no, we're not going to continue this cycle. We're not going to continue this generational trauma. We're going to fix things ourselves. And it's both destructive, you know what I mean? Because it, it has to be. There's There's no other way to quietly go about changing things but and it's also us setting boundaries for ourselves and I think it's it's insanely important I admire you just for recognizing that and also speaking on it in situations that are incredibly uncomfortable where maybe you're not surrounded by everybody who might support you at the time and you're afraid you're going to be shunned so it's it's amazing and I truly truly commend you because I know how Like, I can't imagine how much more difficult that was for you. Thank you. It's, it's been, it's been interesting. It feels like it's taken almost a full lifetime, but I know at the same time, a lot of people feel like they spent all their adulthood unraveling the trauma of their childhood. And I keep hearing a lot of people talking about breaking generational curses. Like you're saying, 
putting a stop to it and saying like, this isn't something I'm going to pass on to the next generation. This isn't something that I'm going to teach my nieces, my nephews, anybody that comes after me. And it really is a beautiful thing to see people trying to work through their own socialization that doesn't serve them and pass something on better to the people around them and to stop diminishing the people around us for having different reactions to things. Just because it doesn't bother us doesn't mean that we are better than someone who is bothered by something. And Delia, I love that you're using podcast as the platform to have, have this conversation and to have your voice heard. And it's funny, when I had left the criminal justice system and I had gone out on my own and created Crackers and Soup, I had people say to me, oh, you're, you're very Black now. And I'm like, I've always been Black. However, because I worked in a political forum, I knew my place. I knew I wouldn't be able to express how I viewed in situations that had happened to me freely because that could have had ramifications for me, my family, for my livelihood. And I knew that that was something that I could no longer live with. And that's why I stepped out and created my own business. And that's why I was in mental distress and anguish for three years, because I knew for three years, it's a long, three years is a long time to be in despair, that I could no longer continue in this field. But where it may take other people six months to make that determination, I feel like with people of color, it takes that much longer because we're told by our family members and because we're told by society, you have to stay at this place. There, it's very hard to get another job. You have to continue on this path so that you can retire, so that you have something, a, a foundation for when you're an older age. Instead, other people are told, live your dream, go find yourself, go find who you are, have that gap year. With, with minorities, it's you need to settle. So it's so much harder for us to come into terms with, this is not only causing me mental duress, but it's then creating a physical illness within myself that now I'm on, you know, whatever it may be, high blood pressure medication or anxiety medication or depression medication that has side effects because you're squashing everything down for so long because you don't get those allowances that the majority race gets. This is so true. And then also access to generational wealth makes it possible for people to go out and try something because they have reserves. But for a lot of people, just becoming self-sufficient is progress from one generation to the next. And people like to blame folks of color for not having accumulated wealth, but there were literally years when our ancestors were working just as much as anyone else, and they were not allowed to accumulate wealth. And then there've been other people who the government straight up robbed them of their land and they had no recourse. 
And people don't want to acknowledge that. And so many people know that it's not really the fault of the people who are kind of working through poverty as a generational issue. But there are a lot of people who genuinely don't know because the entire educational system is created to continually blame the individual for problems that are actually systemic. And that creates so much stress when you feel like you're living one reality and everyone else is living another. And for your own safety, you have to accept that cognitive dissonance and act as though everything's okay. Because anytime you say something's not okay, because the dominant culture here has prioritized appearing nice and not rocking the boat over justice, people will get mad at you for pointing out an issue with discrimination more than they're mad or upset about the discrimination. And it is so funny. I, I've had people tell me that too, that I've gotten more black. And I'm like, no, I've created an environment in which it's safe for me to be myself. And before I did not feel safe. And many times it was proven that it wasn't safe. You can jeopardize your livelihood, your physical safety, people who will pretend they're cool with you for years can totally turn on a dime when you say, actually, white privilege is real. And this is the way even you, as someone who's like lived next door to me for years or who's related to me by marriage or who's my parent, because a lot of biracial people have been experiencing a lot of drama <laughs> recently. It doesn't mean that you in no way participate in the problem. If I had to work decades to feel like I'm starting to detangle myself from internalized stigma, why would someone who's part of the dominant culture believe that they haven't internalized this racism that benefits them? I internalized stuff that didn't help me at all. <laughs> So why would you not? And when you really think about human nature, if you're being told from childhood, you're great, you're the ideal, band-aids are flesh colored, even though they're not, right? They're your flesh colored or this crayon is flesh colored. Being born in the eighties, that's how everything was. It, it was like such a feat, such work to find someone who knew how to do your hair. You couldn't find anyone who knew how to do natural hair. Just having that experience of always being treated like you're invisible, even though the buying power of folks of color in this country has always been massive, even though so much of this country's wealth only exists because we are here, to be treated like you don't matter, it really does something to you. But imagine being hyped up all the time and constantly seeing yourself reflected back to you. And I've even heard from people of our same complexion that were born and raised in countries where they were part of the largest ethnic group, that they had the same experience. And that when they moved to the United States an adult, as an adult and they're treated differently, yeah, it's still very disturbing, but the trauma is different because their sense of self was established in a country that supported their existence. I've had so many people question what my ethnicity is because I'm, I'm very light-skinned my parents are 
we're both both our my mother's black my father was black my father was cape verdean which is black portuguese and for some weird reason genetics there's always one super light one in the family and i just i and i call myself the white sheep of the family <laughs> i'm literally the white sheep in the family so i've had people say tell me what my parents well your parents you must be mixed well somebody somebody has to have to have white in their family well and i'm like i know some of my lineage you you can't tell me what i already know like i know who my parents are they're my biological parents like nobody was messing with the mailman <laughs> i have facial characteristics of both my mother and my father <laughs> like they're legit and that that's something that is very concentrated on by the majority race as well like pitting you against your your blackness pit, pitting people of color against other people of color like okay well you're lighter skinned so you're favored more you're darker skinned and that goes back to slavery because the lighter skinned they would probably be descendants of the master raping a slave woman her having a child they would be in house while the darker complex would be out working in the fields and doing all of the labor so that tension and is very is very intentional that that strife and combat between people of color so we don't only have to worry about us being the minority race but we also have to worry about our inclusion among ourselves and it's so it's so genius like before we started recording we were talking about um marketing and fear of missing out way before that was even labeled a thing like the way that colonization happened and how they created it to benefit themselves that was a whole marketing strategy and genius that they didn't even, I don't even know if they were aware that they were doing it. It's been so effective. It's insane because there's literally no scientific definition of race. Any characteristic that you can find in one race, and that's in air quotes, you can find in another. But people are still believing things that were established during the transatlantic slave trade, because that's when you see race science popping up. So these are pretend categories, but the damage that it does to your body to be racialized, because you'll notice that if you are perceived as white, your race is neutral. It almost doesn't exist. So the people that are being racialized are people that are not white. And it's so interesting how pervasive the brainwashing is that when you tell someone there's no scientific definition, and by that, I mean, measurable and consistent of race, like linking skin color to any other characteristic, even monolid eyes, you usually think, oh, if you have monolid eyes, you're Asian. That's not always true. If you have a broad nose, you're black. That's not always true. And people are so bought into the idea that race is real that they always think, well, this must be an ancestry thing. But the truth of the matter is whether you're a creationist or someone who believes in evolution, it's been established that the cradle of civilization is Africa. 
And it looks as though at some point, some black person with a womb became everyone's mother. And you can see there are still people where you can see in Africa that have the genetic information in their body to have kids that look like all three of us. So of course, it's normal for one random kid to come out looking different because all that genetic diversity is in the body. Even if for some reason, all people who have almost no melanin in their skin were gone, eventually they would come back because that program is in us. So it, it is interesting how it is like, a, it's a marketing thing. And it's been so effective that people have bought it hook, line and sinker. It's really disappointing to see it happen again and again and again, and hearing from more biracial folks sharing their experience of being othered and alienated has been really helpful for me as well, because colorism is such an issue in the Black community, even though obviously we all have biracial family, even though I have Irish ancestors who according to family lore, it was a consensual relationship, but who knows? So we've all come out different colors too. But, you know, I have seen my parents tell stories of being treated differently by a family because they're the darker ones and being Latinx as well, even though I rarely claim it because of the anti-blackness seeing, even though I feel like Cuba is totally better Cubans in Cuba not the ones here, better about being anti-racist than other parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. However, still, because so many people don't recognize that the African diaspora is in all countries and that you can be Latinx and dark, I just get tired of explaining. So I, I don't even bother with it. And I'm just thankful that I'm also Black American because at least they recognize me as part of them. There's something terribly isolating about your own community, not recognizing you as part of them. I tell Sherline all the time, because Sherline is Dominican. She was born in Dominican Republic. Um, she actually got her green card. She came here. She did all of the things. And I tell her, I was like, look, you just black that can speak another language. Like you were just another stop at, on the boat because truly that's that's what it is. No, absolutely. And I mean, um, recently about a, like a year ago, I did an ancestry test. And because I'm like, my grandmother is dark. Like my family is just so melanatedly mixed everywhere. You know what I mean? Um, but I decided to finally do an ancestry test and it came out that I was 27% sub-Saharan African. And I'm like, that was of no surprise to me. I'm like, we're from DR. Like, we were all born there. I'm like, it, where just historically where everything, everything that happened, it, it just makes perfect sense. And not only that, to deny that part of you, which Dominicans are really bad about that. Dominicans are awful when it comes to that. You grow up where it's, you know, you have to straighten your hair. You have to do everything to bring out that like European side of you and avoid any of that like African and or Haitian ancestry that you have. Um, it's, it's so ingrained in you that you need to, especially coming here, assimilate and become just like every white person 
to the point where you you have to decide like am I losing my culture to do this who am I and you really do go through that like back and forth and then being Dominican typically most people think of Puerto Ricans as lighter skin and Dominicans as darker skin which again we know in every part especially the Caribbean it's a mix of everything but it's everyone would be like oh you're, well are you sure you're Dominican and like are you I don't know I don't think you are and I'm like who are <laughs> who are you to tell me what I am and am not but then to finally get to a point in my life where it's like I I own who I am and I'm not going to let you be the person to tell me what I can and can't be you know what I mean or because my cousin is darker than me if she's not family like what we're not we're not from the same grandparent like we don't come from the same it's it's just all insane so to me when and again I'm not without privilege because I'm significantly lighter skinned I was able to assimilate at a younger age and kind of go through things a lot smoother it wasn't until I started to really own my own culture and and also because again being illegal because it was illegal until I was 16 um being illegal it's like you have to do everything right make sure you do really really well in school you have to work 10 times harder but at the same time keep quiet like don't stand out too much don't um attract attention and blend in as much as you can so we don't get caught you know so it's like you go through all of those things and then finally to get to an age where I was finally free where I was like able to be like yes this is who I am y'all can't do shit and and send me back <laughs> like it um it's it's quite the discovery of yourself and so that's why with this movement and everything that's happening now I'm like oh god yes I'm like yes be yourselves finally and when everyone's like oh everyone's just being so sensitive we used to be able to make all these jokes before and, and nobody had an issue yeah we always had an issue everyone always had an issue we just all had to stay quiet for survival purposes to survive and it's like now to finally be able to be free and then have so many of us come together it's it's amazing and it's a lot of pain and but at the same time liberation and I, I really, I'm excited for this change because it's long coming and just to finally see even our youth really step up and see the trajectory of how things can change once we get some of these people to finally realize certain things or we become the majority at the end of the day. Well, it's crazy because we're already the global majority. The majority of the planet is Asian. And right behind that is the African diaspora. We are literally the global majority, but this has been some very effective brainwashing. And so we, <laughs> we're not doing a whole heck of a lot of, of working collaboratively to break down oppressive systems, but a lot of people, the more access they get, the more they uphold them. And it is so true that the Dominican, my sister lived in the Dominican for years, and I went to visit her there. And of course, we already knew about so much of the racism in the Latinx community just from, you know, being in it or adjacent to it. She spends more time in it than I do. Um, but I do speak Spanish. So 
some of the things that people will say to your face and they don't perceive it as problematic. Like we went to one beach and somebody said, at first they stopped us and they're like, oh, this beach is for white people. And then they could tell from our clothes that we were American, you know, people have eagle eyes for that. And then they didn't say it's for white people. You can't go. They said it's for white people. Don't worry. You're okay. And what they really meant was they were grouping us differently because we're not Haitian, but at a glance, they thought we were, and that's why they came over to stop us. And I've seen like the way they treat the Haitians, it'll make you, I mean, make your head explode. It's next level. Like I can't explain. And I wasn't even there that long. I was there for like two weeks, but I will never forget. I saw this woman. She obviously just finished working all day. It's pretty hot in the Dominican. She was getting on the bus. She paid her fare. Someone pushed her back off. The bus driver closed the door. They pulled off and no one said a word. And while I was having a meltdown, and yelling bus driver. My sister's like, they're not going to go back. So that's the level of abuse that people are subjecting dark-skinned people front to that are on the same island. And I know they also have like historical issues and conflicts. But like you said, Bethany, we are descendants of the same captives that got dropped off at different places, dropped off in Brazil, dropped off all over the Caribbean, dropped off in the United States but we're all connected with this African ancestry. But I heard more people say in the DR while I was there, like, oh, good for you, mejor ando la raza, when somebody decided to marry somebody more fair-skinned than any other place I've been. Like, oh, improving the race, good for you, because the goal is to have the fairest children possible. And I have multiple friends who were given a hard time when they fell in love with somebody dark-skinned and they wanted to marry them. The whole family was like, think about your children. And these are people that when they come to the United States, they're like, I'm not black. And I've, ex I've tried to explain it to so many people and they don't understand it. And I even, this is, <laughs> this is so off topic, but at a previous job, I had a Latinx coworker who I was trying to explain to her that if you have to tell people you're not black, you're blacker than you think. And I asked the people with a ton of European descent who were socialized as white, treated as white everywhere they go if they've ever had to tell anybody they're not black and they said, of course not. And they thought it was so funny and she still didn't get it. So I don't know what it will take <laughs> for people to understand that it's how the world is treating you. It isn't really necessarily about your complexion because you can take a flight and your race changes because it's not real. It's a social thing. And that's why I refuse to call myself African-American. I'm like, I've never been to Africa. African-American to me means that you came that you resided you were born or resided in Africa and then you came here for a different life like that's that's African-American to me yeah that's like what my, it means in any other context and, if you and, say like it, it's so it's so bizarre to me like my parents have never been to Africa I don't know where my family originates because the majority of black people don't know where their family originates I'm like I'm black like that, that's it. I'm black. I'm just high yellow black. Like if you, if you took a Crayola and you put it to my face, it would be like the color of toast. So essentially I'm toast. <laughs> it's it's just, so true because it's a cultural thing at mm -hmm. this point. And it's also the shared experience of being treated poorly that has made us who we are. 
and there are a lot of things that are passed down. It is so interesting to see cultural practices that you can still find on the West Coast, because you're right. I mean, we're typically from the West Coast somewhere, but who knows where or who knows exactly what tribe. The record keeping was sketchy. People didn't allow people to keep their name. They didn't give people a surname that was connected to them. It was connected to the, you know, human rights abusers that own them. So yeah, it's a real problem figuring out exactly where you are. But to me, the term African-American makes it sound like we're not at home and we are at home. This is literally our only home. And even though people always try and tell us we don't belong here because I've been told to go back to Africa, even though I'm not from there. And, <laughs> and the idea that there's no diversity in the diaspora is so persistent in the United States. Um, grouping us all together like that, forgetting that there are adults who moved here from the continent of Africa for whom that term would make more sense. But now you're grouping us with people who have literally no connection to us language-wise, food-wise, maybe a tiny bit food-wise, but it's more like a vibe. It's certainly not the same recipes. It's insane. And even, I mean, we endured that horrible administration in which the white supremacy was like next level, right? But even the current administration, I don't know if you remember, it's best not to keep track of everything these dusty old people say, but this man said, you know, there's more diversity in the Latin community. There's not diversity in the black community. And he said that from his heart. He believes that a lot of people believe that people do not understand that not only is the genetic diversity in the diaspora extreme, so is the cultural diversity and the food diversity, even just inside North America. And I've had a lot of people get upset if I claim my food culture that's more from the Caribbean, or I claim that culture, even though I strongly identify as Black, I am not 100% Black American, but the Blackness is the through line. And when my mother's family moved here, they certainly were treated like they're black. <laughs> so my, like I said, my father was Cape Verdean. Nobody, when I was growing up, nobody knew what Cape Verdean was. So I had to say black Portuguese. Like I did, I, you know, you have to do a paper on where your family originated. I did it on part Portugal because back in the day I was born in the seventies. So there was no internet. You couldn't look up Cape Verde islands, but in my school's library, I was in middle school, they had Portugal. That was the closest. So that's what we went with. <laughs> and I bought in a Cape Verdean rice dish that my, my family always makes. It's called Jagacita. Like, so when you're saying about the different aspects of being black in this country, it's so true. Like, it's wild to me when people just lump anything all together. Like, and it's, and it's just so defiant. Well, you're this, so that means that this. No, I don't. Look, I can relate to this, but I am me. And that's it. And I, and I love that now, especially in 2020, I think one of the things, one of the good things that came out of 2020 and 2021 is that because everything kind of went to a halt, it invited people of color to voice their opinions and to voice their experiences. And to, even if 
it wasn't resonating with people who truly needed to hear it. It was connecting people to say, I'm not alone. This is a collective issue. And just validate that all of those experiences that they had on a regular basis did happen to them. It was true. And be able to say, I have mental health issues because of it. And to say your mental health issues is not your imagination. This, your mental health issues, it's because this absolutely happened because of trauma. Like, let's collectively have a conversation about it and let's try to learn from it. It really is amazing how much damage racism does to the body. And that's something I researched a lot and included in the book is that feeling disconnected from community is really detrimental to the human body. And it's difficult, if not impossible, to feel safe when your connection to community is threatened. And so not only have we been ostracized in many ways from the broader American community, but we're frequently punished or ridiculed when we group together with other folks of color. And then when you add on top of that, being a queer person and dealing with homophobia in communities of color that frequently are clearly, if you look back far enough, colonizer trash. This isn't something that existed in indigenous cultures. A lot of times people will say like, oh, well, there's not a word in this language for you know gay, but it's because people weren't making it an issue. It's like, does there need to be a word for left-handed people per se? If you just make things accessible to everyone, people were just people. And there were even some cultures indigenous to Africa that didn't say what someone's gender was until that person started showing what their gender was after puberty, which makes sense. You know, a lot of kids are so neutral that it's not clear. Is this a really femme person? Is this a non-binary person? Is this a trans person? Like who knows until puberty, then, you know, and actually some people have told me that they knew when they were really little as well, but it makes really a lot of sense to me to wait and let that person tell you who they are. And there's something about the patriarchy and white supremacy culture in which everything has to come from an official source. So even the fact that people think they can tell you who you are, is 100% rooted in white supremacy culture. And the patriarchy is such a big part of that. There were so many indigenous matriarchal societies pre-colonization. So much of what we're dealing with now is all the wounds of colonization. And true, people are still people. So yes, there was intertribal drama. There's always drama. But to have this global brainwashing and this hierarchy that doesn't want to budge, that doesn't want to let people be themselves. That's where that came from. And podcasting is a beautiful thing for letting you finally trust that it's okay to express yourself. And if people don't like it, go listen to another show. There's plenty of room at other tables. You don't have to be at my table. Nobody's forcing you to be here, but it isn't until you allow yourself to fully show up as you that the people who really want to be with you as you truly are will be able to find you. Because when we're playing it down to try and stay safe, 
our people can't recognize us. So speaking of podcasts in which we recognize and you recognize and that you recommended, I was almost late for this interview because I was obsessed with digesting nosy neighbors. This podcast is wild. <laughs> so tell me how you how you found nosy neighbors, how why it, it's your favorite, what what do you love about it? Tell us all the things about nosy neighbors. Going on deep dives trying to like decolonize my feed everywhere, which my very simplified version of that is like I want to hear other voices. I'm like anything, anything but what I heard throughout the 80s and 90s was everything through a cis, het, white, male lens. They create a lot of cool stuff too, but enough already, right? I still have Conan O'Brien in my feed, so that's one. That's enough. Um, and just looking for other shows that featured other people. And when I listened to this first episode, it was just so hysterical to me because it's really all about observation and just the ridiculous things that people do and <laughs> decide to spend their time on and just the humor of human nature, but through a black lens and not just a black American lens, which was also very cool too, because sometimes we only hear a very limited view of what blackness is or just a person of color lens period. So to hear someone who actually has a name that clearly is not English in origin is exciting, but to also hear like this person also is clearly so culturally American, but also still connected to their African roots as well. So the humor that comes from that trips me out. Um, the other co-host is vegan and just the jokes that they tell around that, which isn't often something you hear presented as a POC thing. It, they just are extremely funny and their jokes. I haven't heard one yet that made me feel offended. And that's very rare when I'm listening to things that come through a, a lens that I don't relate to as closely. The whole show may be hilarious, but then there'll be like this one moment where I'm like, well, that's trash. And your brain naturally gets stuck on the things that trigger you because it's just part of you learning to keep yourself safe. So even when you're listening to things that are meant to entertain you, you can be triggered. And so that really made me want to cut back on the lack of diversity in my feed. And because even the algorithms on like iTunes and Spotify will often just keep serving you things that the dominant culture is looking at. Sometimes you got to take a couple extra steps to find like where the comedians, the black comedians, the comedians of color, what are the Asian podcasts like, and by Asian, like get more specific. Don't just listen to um, what the larger ethnic groups represented in the United States are saying, like really look specifically, you can specifically Google it, like Thai podcast or South Asian podcast, you know, really deliberately diversifying your feed. It's, not just something you do like, cause it's a nice to have, but it's so edifying. Just remembering that human diversity is beautiful and frequently hysterical because your worldview affects your humor. It affects the way you express yourself. And I just love that show so much. I, I listened to all the episodes already and I'm always ready for another one. And I, I didn't list this one as one of my favorites, 
because they're in between seasons. But there's a show called Dope Labs that is so good. It's two best friends that are both black femme scientists. And they talk about things in a way that you would never hear another scientist maybe that's in the mainstream. Um, you have to check it out. Like I can't even scratch the surface on how many cool things they've covered, like hair drama from a scientific lens and just hearing it all from two black femmes. It's hysterical. And I love when my guests mention podcasts that I, that I haven't heard of prior because like you said about like typing up Thai podcasts or typing up other nationality when you're, when you're listening to them and you're hearing their experience, there's just the human connection of nonsense happening, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what race you are in the world, no matter what, what you relate as just nonsense shit is going to happen to you. Facts. And no, no, hashtag truths. <laughs> so nosy neighbors had me guffaring because they were talking about in the episode that I listened to, I just recently learned that there's this app like neighborhood app or something, and it tells you what's happening in the neighborhood. And there was this person and he rented out the apartment. Dahlia, let me know if you remember listening to this one. He rented out an apartment. I, I think it was like an Airbnb and somebody came in and they left kind of like a not so great review, but then the owner of the house went in. Oh, yeah. And the owner was, was like, the you one who did flush the toilet? Yes, yes. <laughs> and you, and you left your feces in the toilet. Like the owner went in. It's really good. And David really Wayans good. Jr. was the guest and he was just like, oh my God. So good. It, it, that's what cracks me up. The fact that these apps exist, but there are some people who would never in a million years pull it up. It's a different type of person who pulls it up and even posts stuff. And that's funny too, knowing that some of us know we're that person who's going to go on to neighborhood.com or whatever to tell your neighbors, like, I saw a suspicious looking dog, or I saw a squirrel that needs some help. And some of us would never do that. I would never do that. My spouse logs in, he hasn't posted anything, but he's one of those people who goes through it. And like, he's the first one to know if there's a wolf in the neighborhood who has rabies. And I, I would just be out there getting bitten, right? Because I'm never going to look at that stuff. But the show is hilarious because they go through all of those posts. And sometimes they go through local news posts too, if it's really wild and ridiculous. And just their observations are so funny to me. I'm definitely um, a mix of both. I'm the one that's on the neighborhood watch. Like I watch it, but I definitely wouldn't ever post. No, I would never post, but I am the first one to tell my fiance, I'm like, babe, yo, did you see the bear? There's bears around here? Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I love that oh. it takes all kinds, right? And so <laughs> I even love that, that if you don't want to do that, you don't have to, because the person who wants to will tell you about the bear. Don't keep I'm you posted. Just, I'm just like you. I would be mauled by the bear. I would have the the rabid wolf gnawing on my face because seriously, up until like last month, I had no idea that this app even existed, and I can't remember how 
I found out like I depend on Sherline on so much of the technological things. I'm like, Sherline will tell me if, if it's a need to have, she'll, she'll let me know. But the fact that they were reading these out and because I could, <laughs> I could just imagine the person the owner of this Airbnb or whatnot, just like going ham. Like, <laughs> the other one that you recommended is couples therapy. And this is actually one that I had heard of before. And I listened to the episode with Patton Oswald and his new wife. And I love him because if you can make me laugh, you have my whole heart. And he had me guffawing from like King of Queens. So when his wife had passed and and she was doing like the serial killer book on the Green River Killer. So I kind of followed their story because I liked both of them and I found both of them so intriguing. And then when she passed unexpectedly and he was so raw and so vulnerable in how he was expressing his grief that it made me love him even more because that's something that so many people don't talk about when your spouse passes unexpectedly like they had a they have a daughter he didn't know how he was going to raise her by himself as a male and and having a daughter and like what do you do and all of those things that is kind of talked in hushed tones he was so honest and so truthful about speaking about his experiences so then side note love Corey Haim, love Corey Feldman, love Dream a Little Dream. So when he hooked up with the chick from Dream a Little Dream, I was like, this is the best couple ever. You're a real fan that you followed all that. Well, I didn't know who he had married and I did love the Corys too. I literally just watched Lost Boys yesterday. I try and watch it every single time it comes on. And I still don't understand how there's anybody left who hasn't seen that, but it makes me so sad when I think about what those kids went through and it it's exciting to see too, like people are getting more free with their self-expression and the transparency, because if they had been born a little later and someone had actually been able to affirm their experience, they'd probably still be alive. And well, wait, did only one Corey pass away? Yes, Corey Haim passed away. Cor Corey Feldman is, is still, still alive. alive. Yeah, yeah. But they went through so much because people are abusers and they're predators everywhere. And that's another one of those subjects people used to never talk about. And there's still so much stigma around discussing certain things. And the loss of a spouse is one of them. And it's so helpful. I am really drawn to comedians because they frequently talk about things that no one else wants to talk about. And I feel like that's a very relatable coping mechanism that anybody who's being marginalized might use is that you may talk about things that no one else wants to talk about. And you may laugh about it, not because it's really funny, but it's like, what else are you gonna do? <laughs> and it's just helpful when people laugh, they're also saying, I recognize that, I know that that's real, or I can understand that. It isn't necessarily that they're saying this is a lighthearted thing. Ha ha ha. In that episode, they were talking about their relationship. And I think it's it's such a beautiful thing and how she honors his his wife and how she relates to their daughter. Because that's so important in somebody who's coming into a relationship when 
there's already been an establishment there and having the grace and the power to say, I see you, I'm not replacing your mom. I'm an enhancement to your mother, essentially. And that's why I was like, it's such a unity of a blessing because of who she, who she is and who he, he is. And they can both meet together and, and create this unity for his daughter to see this is how a relationship is. It's, it's a coming together with both of our wounds and you don't have to necessarily bandage each other, but create a salve. Yeah, I really love that the two hosts of the show give a more balanced, sane, real-life view of what long-term relationships that are supporting you can look like, and that it isn't always what we see advertised in books and sitcoms and whatever, and that it what works for you may be different for what works for someone else. And that a lot of us don't really know what we need to thrive because we've been socialized to focus on what is put out there as important in the type of person you're attracted to. So it's, it's a really, really good show. And I also like the diversity of the couple, even them being an interracial couple. And even though true Jewish Americans do typically find themselves represented in the media. I still think because anti-Semitism is still a thing, I do enjoy hearing somebody lead with that identity because I also see where other people play it down. Some people are still out here changing their names and stuff. So it's just cool to see them both show that the differences are not the problem. The differences are an enhancement. They enhance your understanding of the world. And it's stigmatizing difference that's the problem and they have all kinds of different couples on there and the ages at which they come together is distinct what relationships they had before and them finding a way to go through life together in a joyful way is really cool yeah I love I love the hosts I love that the, and I love that they're so real that they're like yo you got on my nerves this morning <laughs> And so healthy that they acknowledge that therapy is a crucial part of some relationships. And that's so stigmatized too. The fact that they will openly communicate that because it used to be something that people thought was only for people who are in trouble. Not that this is a great way to get your relationship off on a good foot, you know? So yeah, I just love podcasting so much because it's so far ahead of what mainstream media is saying. And even though there's like a million different services out there now, because you have to subscribe to every single little platform to see all your shows, podcasting is still a way to get a big idea out into the world to hundreds of thousands of people with like a minimum barrier to entry. And you can start small and then keep improving as you go. Like even some of these professionally produced shows, their audio isn't always perfect, especially now that everyone's socially distancing. But it's just, it's so fun to see that more people are getting into podcasting. And I think even the small indie shows are going to grow because there are a lot of people still literally don't even know what a podcast is. But as these bigger names 
start podcasting and people are curious, that will also open them up to a world of other opportunities for being entertained, edutained, you know, all of that. So in our final segment, it's Biz Please, and you alluded to it a little bit in the very beginning. So I hope people stayed with us to the very end so that they can find out more about you. So Bisk, please tell us where people can find you. Tell us more about the book that you wrote, where it can be found, if there is a pre-order link. Yes. So check out the show notes for the pre-order link. It's available on Amazon. It's available, honestly, in all the places that you probably buy books, Barnes and Noble, all the places. And the book is really centered on a lot of the things that we're talking about, how racialized stress is a pre-existing health condition and what you can do to actually protect your health. And spoiler, it isn't like assimilate more and make more money, even though that's what people always put out there as the solution to closing these gaps in our health outcomes. It's really more about reclaiming what we've lost, learning to accept ourselves, detangle ourselves from negative messaging and defining health and wellness on our own terms and not comparing ourselves constantly to this mythical norm or standard that's been put out there as the be all end all for being worthy, for being healthy. And it is centered on queer folks of color, but there's so, so, so much there for all people of color and for other people as well. You think about all the self-help books we've read over the years that were centered on straight white folks and you still got something out of that. So even when you're not the center, you still benefit. But I think it's so important to center the most vulnerable. And I hope that one day queer folks of color won't be the most vulnerable and people won't remember what the term most vulnerable means. I think we got a long ways to go. So I really think this book is going to help a lot of people. It has messages in it that I needed to hear and I needed to have affirmed. And I know that a lot of people have had the same, very similar lived experiences to mine. And it's going to really be helpful. It's the only thing of its kind out there so far. Get your copy. No, that's awesome. I, I, to be able to put a body of work like that, A, be brave enough to, because I think that that's really important. You know what I mean? The fact that you and being vulnerable enough to put that out. So I hope our listeners are running straight to our show notes and clicking that link and, per, and pre-ordering this book. Thank you so much for y'all's support. This has been an awesome experience. So super selfishly, I just want to be like, um, I interviewed Dahlia, New York Times, number one bookseller. Yes. You know what I've been thinking about too? And I've seen so many podcasters do this so well to have a page that features all of the media outlets where you've been featured. And a podcast is a media outlet. And so I totally need to start putting it. I need a big one that says, you know, I didn't have my chowder, but it was great after the fact. (laughs) (laughs) So funny enough, I just said to Sherilyn last week, I was like, we need to have a featured on section on our website because we've been featured in so many of these different articles and 
podcasts as guests. And I'm like, we don't even have our own featured on website page or tab. So yes, you definitely have to. It has been such a dream and a treat and you have taught me so much and Oh, you're just, I can't wait to buy, to buy your book. Yay. You're welcome. Thank you so much for your time and go back to work. Thank you. <laughs> this has been great. I'll talk to y'all later. Thanks, Dahlia. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Chatting Over Chowder. This episode is sponsored by Crackers and Soup. You can find out more about our guest and Crackers and Soup in our show notes. If you loved this episode, subscribe and drop us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time. Stay super. Stay super.